Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Welcome back to another edition of the Internet's Most Dangerous Tottenham Hotspur Podcast. And my God, do we actually have something new to talk about this week. It's not just another turgid performance from Tottenham Hotspur. There's honestly way too much to talk about. But I'm not even going to waste time on introductions. Ben, how excited are you today that your dreams have all finally come true? I am naturally referring to the Super League that you have long, long held out for. I thought you were talking about my excitement over another turgid draw against uh, Everton this, this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know how much you love it when we just, like, fuck around with Everton, so... It did set my heart alight. Uh, yeah, I mean, this should be the best day of my life. And, you know, Daniel Levy did his best to ruin it with his announcement yesterday. But uh, I am trying to exercise self-care and focus on the positives, and that is Jose Mourinho... It is no longer in charge of Tottenham Hotspur, but Brian Mason is. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, this must be a real bittersweet day for you. Yeah, I was going to say, and so we arrive at what is the darkest day of my life. <laughs> Brian Mason, my, my sworn enemy, is now the manager of the football team that I love. Uh, yeah, I, I, you're right. Um, I would really, really love Jose enjoyed what he did with the club, and then to see him stabbed in the back and have the club turned over to Ryan Mason, a charlatan who's not even 30 years old, which is another problem, because um, it just makes me feel like shit. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, this is a horrible day all the way around, but we do have the Super League, and I'm very excited. <laughs> You, dear listeners, you're going to have to stick with us to see if that was sarcasm or, or Brian actually meant it. But uh, we're going to talk about Jose first. Cause... I still don't know. <laughs> I'm only doing a bit. I didn't say we were. I didn't say we we didn't have to stick around too bad. <laughs> but our listeners will too. It's a journey we're all going to take together. But I think we need to start with Jose. We're still a Tottenham Hotspur podcast. And whatever the Super League is going to do to us as a club, it hasn't done it yet. So... Boy, Jose Mourinho fired. I didn't think this would happen. I don't know if a lot of that was me just, as you said, been exercising self-care and not setting myself up for the disappointment when it didn't happen week after week. But I just figured we were going to let him eat shit for the rest of the year. Levy wasn't going to, you know, was going to ride it out so he could pay out less money at the end of the season. But no, we we fired him after Everton. I guess my immediate, what immediately strikes me is something must have happened behind the scenes because... I mean, that, that Everton game was just more of the same. It wasn't good. It was very bad, but it wasn't anything we haven't been watching for two months now. I mean, I think that's the thing. It's like, you don't need to be go behind the scenes when the scenes are what they are. Like, it, two months of this, you know, with a cup final on the horizon and, you know, the natives getting restless, it's like, what are we sticking around for? Like, I've yeah. said this after, like, every recent match. It's like, what is Jose doing that makes you think, Oh yeah, this is the guy who's going to win us our our first cup final um, in a few years, and possibly bring home the first trophy in a decade. You know, like 
there's nothing. You know, Ryan Mason has zero body of work other than like some decent stuff with the U18s, but that seems more promising than the continual trials and tribulations of the Jose Mourinho's well, first at game. least and like, you're, you're going to get a new manager bounce out of him. I mean, Jose wasn't getting anything. Do we even know if he's going to this team? I, I, look, and I mean that in a serious, like, it, we'll, we'll get on to him later, I guess. I, I, but I, I, I just think The reporting right now, as we record this, is, is Monday night in America, for just for reference point for our listeners. The reporting, which has not been announced by the club, is that what we do, the reporting is that Ryan Mason and Chris Powell are going to manage the team for the rest of the year. Mason's name seems to come up first. We know that Mason ran the training session today on Monday, but the club hasn't made, as far as I'm aware, an official announcement. Just, so just to be clear, where we currently stand in Brian's nightmare. <laughs> but I don't want to address the Mason-Powell team yet. Like We'll talk about it later, I'm sure. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I just hope that Powell has more of a primary role because he's like, <laughs> been an actual manager, although of like you know questionable quality, but he's been in some weird situations and stuff. But he's actually managed a professional football team in a match um so that's a positive to me um but yeah i'm, I'm with ben like I, I just didn't think that this this would end and i certainly didn't think that it would end two matches before a cup fight or i guess one match before I, that's the damning thing to me is that like you would have thought levy was going to give him till the cup final just what given what we know about their relationship and why you have Mourinho here in the first place. And we didn't, I, I, mean, I mean, we didn't even give him that. And I think it's the right call. I'm just surprised we made it. I mean, listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty confident that I laid my marker down that he would be gone before the cup final. Yeah, and that we, you did. You did. We would I, have the Ryan Mason bounce. And like, I mean, it's just weird, though, that, like, I mean, it, it's banter-tastic, like, as a, as a decision, just because now we can be like, ah, oh, it's the first team he's left without a trophy since he moved from wherever he was to Porto, you know, 20 years ago. And, like, that's, that's funny to me for the Jose Mourinho legacy, but at the same time, we also didn't win a trophy when that was pretty much the stated aim of hiring Jose Mourinho. So who really lost hey, in this look, situation? We haven't we haven't not won a trophy yet. Like that statistic gets We're, exponentially better if we win the trophy a week after firing him without him. And we're the only club that Joe they didn't win a trophy at, but we won a trophy a week later. Like that is fucking would be fucking awesome. Like I I'm totally here for that. It would be really hilarious. Uh, I have to give our friend Vince credit. He said that you know how great would it be if we have a good day out with Ryan Mason in the Cup final and. I think we all have to get like rein in our expectations because I think we are probably going to get pumped by by uh, City, but we are playing with house money now. We don't have to sit through this like awful Mourinho shit, and we have no real expectations for the like placeholders. So if we win, it's gonna like there's like the advantage is if we do manage to win, there's no like downside to it. It's not like Mourinho gets to claim credit or Mourinho gets to like tarnish that victory for us somehow. Like, it's all gravy at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I just, gonna, go ahead. I was just saying, was he going to take credit for, like, masterminding the buy victory? Over, I mean, like, he will, like, but that's not, like, real. That's not, like, and no one's going to care about that, except the extremely weird Mourinho stands who, like, I guess Ben and, you know, the rest of, like, 
DSA Spurs Twitter have been telling me exists, but I didn't believe them until, like, today I found out they had, like, instructions, like, like, you know, like, I guess, like, the military when they change presidents or something, like, of what to do when Mourinho gets fired from a job, like, it was, <laughs> I thought they were parody accounts when I was reading them, like, incredibly strange shit. The, the thing that I will say, the, the stuff that isn't incredibly strange is all the reporting that a lot of the journalists have done around this. And, you know, so many people have done, you know, decent work on this. I, I hesitate to say good because no one's giving us sourced quotes from actual players, which would be great. Um, we're That's that's what we get in America. Except Pogba. Credit, credit where credit's due. Pogba's out there slandering Jose Mourinho. Like... But he can. He can. He absolutely can. And more credit to him. But, like, um, you know, all the folks that, that reported on this and you know, talking about how, you know, Mourinho lost the culture of the club, how, you know, his tactical training was, you know, kind of uh, – was, was all that they focused on and the play, things were too reactive. And then also everybody hated Joe Sacramento and everybody hated everybody. Else. And it's just – it's so interesting – that this ended exactly the way we knew it would. And it's just, it's it's frustrating because all the stuff that's being said is exactly the same stuff that we as supporters have kind of been saying or that we watch journalists and supporters for other clubs say over the course of the last decade. And... It wasn't anything new that led to this. It wasn't like some bust-up with the press. It wasn't a bust-up with the manager. It wasn't a, even a bust-up with the players. It was just... He doesn't know how to manage football clubs anymore. Like, it's just that the game has passed this man by, and it was... It was something that you two definitely highlighted when we hired him. Uh, it was something that a ton of other Spurs fans highlighted when we hired him. And this is just ultimately ended in the most predictable way possible. And I find that very frustrating. Like I would much rather it have ended interestingly and badly than to have ended in the exact bad way. We all knew it would end. Right. For Daniel Levy to make like just a cold decision that a, a, a kid who recently suffered massive head trauma is better equipped to manage us to our first trophy than the guy he dreamed about managing this club for his entire ownership tenure. And it being just really, like you said, divorced from any any real inflection point. And just like, just that cold calculation of like, this guy sucks. Hopefully Ryan Mason can do a less shitty job and piss people off less. Is just like, it's depressing because you, you'd like to think that Daniel Levy has a better finger on the pulse of like world football than than he had and for it to end not i think not only predictably but like i think even worse than the than than the predictions like i think i, I don't think the, it is worse than the, the predictions <laughs> it went i think brian's right this is exactly how we all could have seen it going like i think the, the timeline is truncated in a way like i think we thought like yeah we might win a league cup and, like, muddle through, and then in a couple of years, it'll go really badly. But it'll always go really badly. Like, we never got, like, the high points of the Jose Mourinho thing. So I think 
even like the most cynical of us, myself included, would have hoped like, well, it's gonna suck, but like something good might happen. And like well, we just never even got the good part. It so, was just just the, the toxic collapse. Well, but so day one, you know, you. Ben, you have been very anti-Mourinho from day one. Our friend Vince, who has his own newsletter, who we talk to a lot, he has been extremely anti-Mourinho from day one. You listen to the extra inch, very anti-Mourinho from day one. And it's got to be said, no, 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 but like extremely just like, this is bullshit. Like, like you know, and I think it's got to be said, like, you guys were all right. It was like the way that it play, it played out. Like you said, maybe in a more truncated fashion, but it played out like you guys all said it would. And I think, you know, looking back at it myself, I was not thrilled about this hire. I certainly tried to have a little optimism just because, you know, you know you're you're in for at least a couple of years of this. So you want to, like, hope that it turns, you know, like you said, that we win a league cup or two. Yeah. No, I don't want to, like, drive myself insane watching Spurs every week. So you try to find something to hang on to. And, you know, I think it was clear, certainly by end of last year, that you know this is what it's going to be. This is what's going to be, and I, I just think you know the thing with Spurs is I think Spurs is the first club Mourinho got a job at that you could really make the case that this is a bad idea. Like I think even at United, like that made sense. Like you, you would have that was the last club where you could be like, you know what, he might have learned some lessons. He's a good fit for what they need. You know, big club, yada, yada, yada. You know, like Chelsea's a rat's nest anyway. But that we saw what happened at United, and I understand. I, 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 if I'm going to give Levy a break, it's going to be this. He was a, When we fired Pochettino, there were not a lot of good choices. He should have made a better one, but, you know, there weren't a lot of good choices. And Mourinho, I'm sure, gives a very good interview. But at the same time, like, the writing was on the wall. Like you knew what was going to happen. You knew how it was going to go. And we did it anyway. And, you know, especially... I, I can't remember who wrote it. One of the English... I remember thinking... I think it was Henry Winter, actually, who wrote this the other day. Who said, like, you know, like he was an, always an extraordinarily poor fit for a club full of romantics. Which is what... That's actually one of the best descriptions I can come up with for, for Tottenham Hotspur. I mean, he was... Even, even if what he was doing at the end of last year with that counterattacking game worked. And as much as, like, you know, I did find some joy out of what we did to Arsenal in the first North London Derby of the year, like, it's not a good fit for Spurs. He was never a good fit for Spurs. And, I don't know, it's just, it's, there's something, you know, there's there's that old adage, like, whatever the joke is in football, Spurs are always the punchline. And it just sucks that we're the club where Mourinho proved beyond a doubt that he was past it. I mean, if it means we never have to, you know, see him linked with, like, an interesting managerial position, that's fine. I mean, unless he wants I don't want to be... I don't want to be the sacrifice to improve world football, yeah. like, putting aside the other stuff we're doing in world football. Like, I don't care if the rest of world football is better off because Jose Mourinho won't get a good job because of what he did at Spurs, but... True. I'd really like him to get the Arsenal job, honestly. Um, yeah, I... I... Gab Marcotti, was, Gab Marcotti was surmising that he'll get a job at Inter within five years. Sure, sure, why not when, when Conte leaves? Um, I, I think the other thing that Ben hit on is, like, the absence of a real, like, inflection point here. Like, there were so many points in this season where you were like, 
it made sense to let him go. Oh, I disagree with I disagree with you guys. I oh, mean, the West. Oh, there, there's like, a there's there's a lack of an inflection point on this one. You're right because I think Zagreb is the like that's when we all knew Jose was done. Sure. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that's I what I mean. It's like so then is on. I think it's we're getting at right. Yeah, I think if there was a moment where it's like this isn't going to be around, he's not going to be around next year. It was Zagreb. It was it was it was such a bad game. The player reaction was so ugly. His remarks were so bad like you know if you're Levy like what the fuck are you doing like right but what I mean is is undertaking the decision now yeah after after admittedly like not a good game against Everton but a game in which you got a point and Harry Kane scored two goals and whatever um it, it just seems weird like certainly if we had gone out there and you know played the way we did on the opening week against Everton and lost, I I I would have I would have expected it. But it's not just Everton, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it's sooner or later it's, enough it's is enough. Newcastle, it's Man U, yeah. it's Everton, all in a row, and like the response to Zagreb was, you know, a, a decent victory over Aston Villa, and then just capitulation after capitulation after capitulation. And no, I understand, like, but like usually, like look at the, like the Pochettino, the end of Pochettino, where we kind of like slump towards the finish line, like. There were at least a run there at the end where it was like, okay, this is now untenable. And with Jose, I think we as fans were at the untenable point for quite a while. But I, it, it's interesting to me that Daniel Levy came to the this is untenable position after just kind of an eh result against Everton. Well, I think I think you can, if you if you're looking for and insisting upon an inflection point, I think you could point to two things. One is the cup final is in a week, and the results we've had recently do not speak to a manager capable of delivering that trophy. And so, if we're going to fire him the day after we lose the cup final anyway, like why not give somebody else a chance and just roll the dice? And the other inflection point, more cynically, is we just announced our inclusion in the European Super League, and everybody got very mad about it. And if you're already thinking you're going to fire Jose in a week, maybe you buy back some fan goodwill in the wake of that announcement. I think it's a. I think it's a third thing, Ben. I think it's if we want to make Europe at all, something's got to change. Something's well. (laughs) If we want to be in the Europa League next year. In theory, like something's got to change soon, and I think if you know you look at that Everton game, and maybe there wasn't like a dramatic moment, but it's just you know sooner or later enough's got to be enough, and you know it doesn't necessarily have to be Mourinho like telling Levy to go fuck himself or you know slapping Deli Alley in front of the dressing room or whatever. You know, it just has to be like this isn't tenable. This we can't keep doing this. Um, which is the thing that, you know, struck me for a while. It's like, these performances will sooner or later get him fired because we can't, like, they're not acceptable for a club of Tottenham's name. I mean, Tottenham, whatever else you want to say about Spurs this week, we know how ambitious they are. And, you know, they can't keep playing like this if they want to be considered one way or another part of Europe's elite. Wow. What's us you say they? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm already a fan of uh, Barnett, I think. Uh, I don't know. Redford, Redford. Yeah, there we go. Uh, FC Hotspur of Tottenham, the, the new grassroots yeah. North London club founded in the wake of Tottenham's destruction of modern football. I mean, Ben, when you when you look at the sort of Mourinho tenure at Spurs, was it were all your sort of 
was everything you were worried about like proven out, or was it something else? Was it just were the things that you hated about Mourinho what made his tenure here so loathsome, or did you living through the experience did you find it to be were, were there new and unexplored avenues of misery? I mean, yeah, I think if you look at like who Jose Mourinho was as a manager, the things you'd point to as a guy, a reason you don't want this guy in the club is a he plays bad, boring football. Check. B he is. A fucking mouthy asshole in the press who makes you feel like shit because when things go badly because he doesn't have a filter and it's never his fault and he's going to throw his players on the bus. Check. And then C, which we saw like so starkly at Man U, which was just constantly feuding with players and making scapegoats out of other people, anything to deflect attention from like his possible failings. And like, that more than anything was I think the hallmark of his tenure at Spurs you know from Ndombele in, in, in his first season to Deli Alley and Joe Roden and Gareth Bale and even Harry Winks who like I don't fucking like but like the way he approached all these people were just was just toxic and horrible and like say what you will about Harry Winks like he's not good enough for Spurs he just isn't but he is a guy who came up from the academy, who has played very important for games for us and done well. Like, he doesn't need to be treated like absolute shit just because you don't want him to be in your team. Like, you can get him out of this team. You can sell him. Like, you know, it's like, I'm much madder about, like, the way he treated, like, actually good players. But, I mean, so like, wait a minute. You're a Winx apologist now? No, I'm a I'm a apologist for like not kicking like small puppies, which is basically what Jose did to Harry Winks, and it's just like, again, like, yeah. Wow. I didn't realize Fuck you were Harry against Winks. modern football. I didn't know. I'm extremely. I mean, I'm pro anything football. bad that happens to Harry Winks. Um, <laughs> but I think it's you know, I, I think we saw it. We thought it was we thought it was maybe just Danny Rose in that documentary, but he's like you know. It's like you say, I played like shit, but other guys who played like shit or practiced like shit are still on the team. And it's, and you know, you read that Pogba interview where he's like, one week he's your best pal, and the next week he won't fucking talk to you, and you can't get in the team, and you don't know why. And it's just oh, my favorite thing, though, to come out of this is the story about Danny Rose rolling up to like <laughs> and hopping out of his van or car or whatever, and being like to all the assembled journalists, like, what are you guys doing here? And then just laughing and walking into the training. The center. worst, That's the worst thing about that is the video of the Sky Sports reporter talking about it when it was first shown to me. There's all these vans driving behind him, and I think Danny Rose is about to jump out of any of those vans because I think they were filmed. I thought they were filmed the incident, but they hadn't. So, it, like after like a minute, he finally like talks about it. Like no cameras are ever rolling. I'm like, well, you guys are horrible journalists. Um, no, so Danny Rose like can't get back in the squad for the cup final, but I would just yeah. love to just see him like hanging out in the dugout with a beer in his shorts, just like having no. a good time. Like honestly, like a good vibes cup final is is gonna take me a lot a lot further than like a hard fought, miserably played Jose Mourinho Cup final. No, because if it sucks if it sucks, whatever. It's Ryan Mason's first game. Who gives a shit? Or second game? Who gives a shit? 
Uh, if we win, like, holy shit, isn't that awesome? Jose Rio can't claim credit for this, or he can, but no one's going to believe him, so. Yeah, and, you know, like, honestly, like, Ledley King is the only assistant who didn't leave with Jose Mourinho. Like, he's still around. Like, you're going to have, like, a feel-good atmosphere in that dugout. Like, the only person by reports that were still on Jose's side was Harry Kane. And Harry Kane is, is friends with Ryan Mason. Like, they came up to the academy together. Like, He's not gonna. It's not gonna be somebody he's gonna like disrespect and like not play hard for. And everybody else who fucking hated Jose is gonna be having a pretty good time. And like, I just feel like you're gonna get like good vibes at the Cup final. Honestly, like, is a great situation. Like, I'd rather have like good manager the Cup final, but that was never gonna happen. So like, I'll take this. It might work. I think. The old, and I guess we're at the point where I can talk about Ryan Mason and Chris Powell and the new manager bounce now. Um, but I think the main benefit for us is that we play Southampton this week, and they're horrible. Um, so going into the cup final, we probably coming off the back of, you know, a 4-1 win or something like that. You know, knock on wood. So, I'm sorry. Come on. I gotta say, I gotta say, if Ryan Mason beats beats Hassan Huddle in his first fucking match as a manager, like, like our our manager our managerial search should be one name smaller than it is today. I mean, look, I I just didn't remember Greg you coming down to Atlanta and watching with me Tim Sherwood beat Mauricio Pochettino Southampton <laughs> with that Bentaleb fucking midfield and. I don't think that that should have eliminated Pochettino from the conversation. I, I heard that. I heard. I heard Mauricio Pochettino was a fraud who left Tottenham, who would leave Tottenham under less than ideal circumstances, and all that proved to be true. So, I certainly wouldn't have said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, but you know, like the fact is, like we have a very good team, and Southampton don't. And like, you know, if Southampton beat us, then like. Yeah, Ralph Hassenhill did a good job managing it. And if we beat them, it just probably means, like, these are the teams that we should be beating on a week-in, week-out basis, regardless of who our manager is, because that's th- those are our parts. You know, a manager's job is to make us greater than the sum of our parts. The sum of our parts are better than Southampton, whatever the manager's Well, and I think, I think you've sort of, in a roundabout way, come upon the true problem with Jose Mourinho. Like, we were paying him a lot of money. And, you know, when you pay a manager that much money, and I think we certainly saw this under Pochettino, you expect him to make this team better. You expect him to get more out of this team than, you know, like what they're, you know, than what you see on paper. And I can't think, maybe Harry Kane, maybe you want to give him credit for Kane because Kane was kind of in the doldrums. I, I tend to think it had more to do with rest than Mourinho's coaching. But other than Kane, I mean... Is there anyone who's played he improved? Maybe Hoiberg, if you're inclined to be generous with Mourinho? Like, he wasn't getting anything extra out of any part of this team. And it was, it's just, but what the fucking point is, you know, we can we can get Ryan Mason to do that. Like, Can we get Ryan Mason to do that? <laughs> and, and, no, and I mean that seriously, and I mean that not in, like, uh, me being a parody of myself and, like, teasing Ryan Mason. Okay, be- we can get, like, we can get a guy we pay, like, three million a season to do that, is what I'm saying. Maybe not Ryan Mason, but, like, you don't, if, if all you're going to get is the, like, re- the average performance out of everyone you've bought, 
why are you paying Jose Mourinho all this money? If he's not getting anything extra. If the rest of the season Harry Kane, like, stops scoring, or, like... Well, that might happen because he's on the bench injured, but... Yeah, yeah, right. He did just have an ankle injury. But, like, yeah, if you see Kane and Son just, like, turn to shit without Jose Mourinho, then, yeah, retroactively I might say, okay... For all his faults, Jose did very good work with these two guys. They were having career seasons under his his leadership, and that does speak to something that he was doing. But I I have a really hard time imagining these guys just, like, turning to shit just because Jose isn't in the dugout. Like, the whole team was falling apart against Everton, and Harry Kane still banged in two goals. And, like, I have a really hard time seeing how, like, the direct connection between... Jose Mourinho and Harry Kane inspired those those two individual moments of goals. I mean, Everton inspired those two individual moments. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. But but so like I guess my thing is 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 and the and the club still hasn't clarified this and maybe we get clarification on this you know tomorrow or prior to the match on Wednesday is like to me it feels like Powell should be the caretaker manager here. He's the one with actual managerial experience. He is the one um, who has a, a more of a coaching pedigree. And and we're pairing him I guess right now is with co-caretaker Ryan Mason who will make the fans happy. Right, exactly. And that's the thing is like, I feel like that is fan service and that is you know, and so like I'm interested more to see how that dynamic breaks down in terms of you know who's doing press conferences, uh, who is who is you know more active on the pitch, like or, or you know at pitch side. Like I'm interested to see that. Um, personally, I hope it's Powell that is that is that is taking the lead on this. Not, not because, again, not because I don't like Ryan Mason. Yeah, I mean, which I don't, but <laughs> also. Like, I just think that Powell is the more qualified candidate. Like, whatever you think about Ryan Mason and, and you know, the, the what he's done with the Academy or the under-19s, like, most of us don't know anything about that. Like, I would say that we as a group are fairly tuned into Tottenham Hotspur. And can you tell me what formation Ryan Mason plays yeah. with his under-19 teams? I could tell you we're in fourth place right now in the U18 South. And that is all down to the incredible work of our manager, Ryan Mason. But, yeah, I mean, like, you know, like, Chris Powell's managerial acumen is, like, it's incredibly limited. It's not like he has, like, no, a exactly. career. I'm like, you know, we're coming off of, like, a guy with the best pedigree in, in the, really the history of soccer. It's, like, behind, like, Ferguson and Pep Guardiola, there's nobody with a better Pep Guardiola or a Pep a better pedigree than Jose Mourinho. And that went really badly. So, like, I don't really care about, like, the minute differences between, like, Academy Director Chris Powell's previous managerial experience and neophyte UAT manager. Well, they are. Let, let's be clear about what they're... What... They're both going to just be there to, like, just tell guys to, like, go out there and have a good time. They may impose some, like, tactical, like, ideas about, like, this is what a football team should look like and how you should move a ball and try to attack. But, like, I'm not... I'm not banking on either of them to, like, come up with, like, the master plan to out-coach Pep Guardiola. I just want them to make the players not feel like they live under Jose Mourinho's dictatorship and 
Maybe get lucky. Maybe uh, no. Make make us feel. Really make us feel like we're not living under. I mean, they're they're here for a few reasons in that they are hoping that just anybody can get a new manager bounce, and they are relatively safe. Hand. I mean, frankly, they will make Ryan Mason will make everyone feel better, or at least most Spurs fans who aren't Brian feel better, and. Like, you know, they can be replaced at the end of the year. They can go back to being our youth coaches at the end of the season, and we can hire a real manager. And what I find, frankly, most exciting about this is the rumors today that part of the reason we fired Jose was so we could steal a march on Bayern and hire Net Nogglesman before uh, Bayern could sort it out with Leipzig. And if we're really that canny, like, kudos to Daniel Levy, because, you know, good job not fucking around on that one. Because right now it looks like Leipzig is interested in fucking over Bayern Munich and not letting them have their manager. And if we could somehow turn this to our advantage, I would feel very good about everything. Yeah, I mean, that'd be great. Uh, Nagelsmann is a much better manager than both Chris Powell and Ryan Mason. Um, so, Look, yeah. nobody wants them to like manage full term. It's <laughs> no, just like, I'm not saying I that. I think it's, it's worth pointing out. Even Wendy doesn't want Ryan Mason to be our manager next year. So, like... I don't think that's going to happen, even if he wins a cup final against Guardiola, which, Brian, no offense, will be the funniest fucking thing that's ever happened in the it'll history be, of the world. It, look, it will be funny, but for me personally, <laughs> I will not enjoy it. I will just pretend that that trophy doesn't exist. This, to me, feels like, and I know we'll probably talk more about the cup final after the uh, Southampton game, but it feels like... A more extreme version of us talking in our talking ourselves into winning a Champions League final, <laughs> like, oh, this could happen if all this stuff goes right. But that times two. It's incredible how like a League Cup victory, and I know Man City is very good, but winning the League Cup feels like astronomically further out of our reach than winning the Champions League final did. And like that's just very depressing. <laughs> so, um. What do you guys think Mason does differently? Or Mason and Powell, whatever. Powell and Mason, whatever. What do you think they do differently other than, I don't know, just creating some sort of attacking plan? That, like, I think they do I think they do an it. attacking plan. I think they try to attack. Think, like, are we gonna see are we gonna see Deli Alley yes. and Gareth Bale back in the first team? I, or are we gonna see a different midfield? Uh, who gets? I don't know about Bale. Players? I don't know about Bale because like you do st- even let's. I, I think it's pretty clear De Bruyne is gonna miss the final. Uh, like he's not gonna be healthy by then. I mean, I, I think you gotta respect City enough that maybe you can't start Bale um, because you know you you do still expect a modicum of defensive work. But I think Delhi starts. Uh, I think Danny Rose is probably not fit. Or used to playing with the first team. Heroes can't play. Yeah, uh, but I, I think like if you if you play Deli Alley, you drop Lucas, right? And I mean Lucas has been okay though. Like Lucas hasn't been the problem with this team. No, but you're getting some creativity, and we know Deli can do defensive work. I, I I think you know I don't have a problem dropping Lucas for Deli. Like I'm not honestly like that bothered by the player selection. I know we're probably not going to see like a Harry Winks Mrs. Zoka midfield, like probably. I, I like yeah. Mason midfield. I do. Like, I, I, I would the most like me and Nabil Bentaleb. Like, you settle on Winks and Sissoka. If the lineup comes out on Wednesday and it's like, uh, you know, Dyer Sanchez at the back and Winks Zoko in midfield, I am going to 
I'm gonna cry and no, Ryan taking back a lot of things I Ryan said. Ryan Mason will be like, what did Pochettino do that worked? And he's like, you know what he did? He did Wink Sissoko midfield. Ryan Mason is just gonna walk Ryan over. He's just gonna walk over to Chris Powder in training and be like, did you see how much crown Musa Sissoko could cover? Did you see how much energy he had? Man, we gotta start him. <laughs> I have to think Ryan Mason looks at a guy like Tangi Ndombele and Giovanni Lo Celso and sees that they're very good players, you know? Like, But I think whoever we play, like, we will play with a goal to try to be on the front foot. I agree. Or at least more on the front foot than more on the front foot than we've seen. Yeah. And again, that may be a stupid approach against a very good Man City team that could just, just wreck us. Like, Whatever we do, like they're very capable of that. But I mean, he'll get a he, the he'll get a chance to try out whatever he wants to do against Southampton. The problem is, is like those two matches present very different problems. You know, like Southampton, you can probably go out there and kind of control the game and dictate play. And against City, you're not really going to get to do that. And for new managers, regardless of their experience level, implementing two different match plans in the space of what, six days, five days? Not really ideal. No, but I mean again, like you just play the good players and let them go out there and express themselves like it's gonna be you're gonna see us go down swinging and not go down I, I think as you'd see us go down on a judgment ring. I'm like, that's a bleak thing to hope for, like as a best case scenario, but you know, the fact is, is like you know, the first half against Man U, like, we were able to, like, control the game and, like, own the midfield. And, yes, they are much worse at doing that than Man City, but, like, we have very talented players. And especially without KDB and with Man City have a champion, having a Champions League semifinal the Tuesday after the Cup final. Maybe. They don't coming, get kicked out maybe, of the Maybe. 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 <laughs> and just coming off of a, a semifinal against Chelsea that they lost. Like, you know, I don't... It's a final, but it's like their eyes on the Champions League. Like they may take us for granted. It may go badly. Like they may pace us for nothing. I don't care. Like I really, if I if I watch Ryan Mason put out a real tryhard team of Harry Winks and Moses Sissoko, and we just get our asses kicked, I am just not going to be mad. Because You're not going to be mad. Not I think not in the same way. We started. Harry Winks and Musa Soko in midfield in right. a cup final. I'm furious, but I will not be mad that we sacked Jose Mourinho to do that because I still don't think the alternative would have been any better experience. So I want to ask, Ben, I'll start with you on this because I just know you have stronger feelings about Mourinho than us, but and this is a little hard to disentangle from the Super League question, which I think we'll be talking about in a moment. But does, now that Mourinho's tenure is in the rearview mirror, now that by all reports we are looking for a young progressive manager who can build on the youth squad like Pochettino, but at least if you read all the re- reporting today, it looks like what we're trying to get. How does the like, looking forward does this does does having Mourinho in the squad like affect your feelings about Tottenham long term, or is it just like, boy, that sucked. I'm glad it's over. I think there's two aspects of that question. It's, one is like it, it feels very much like electing Donald Trump as president and like <laughs> whatever you do after that, like you're always going to be a country that like 
you elected Donald Trump as president. You kind of have to, like, eat that, you know, forever. And no, no matter how good we may become at which I don't believe, but, you know, that's always there. And I think that is always going to be a thing that kind of taints Tottenham a little bit. But like, you say that, I, I get what you're coming from, but, like, I mean, we fucking hired Graham... I was going to say Graham Green, but George Graham. Um, George Graham. I mean, and that's yeah. like... The power and the glory. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, but we hired George Graham, and I mean, I think at the time, there's probably like fewer awful things you could do to Spurs than that. And I mean, he won a cup, but I, I don't think anybody remembers him anymore. Like, just, just to play devil's advocate to what you're saying. You. We're well, no one's like outraged. No one's like mad about it, or at least not a lot of people are I mad about talk it. Talk to somebody like fifty plus who like lived through that. They'd be like, you could, but I don't think it like affected a swath of fandom in a substantial, long-standing way. Is what I mean. Like, we will move past having hired Jose Mourinho eventually, but like in the very near term, it's it's a thing, and it's particularly a thing for the second point, which is how this affects the players who have lived under Jose Mourinho. And if this means Harry Kane is going to force his way out of the club, if this means we're going to lose guys, this is really squandered peak years of guys like Deli Alley, like Ndombele, like whoever, um, you know, that is a thing that will just, we just can't get back. You know, like players have very short careers and we wasted 18 months of some very good players under a manager who did not get anything meaningful out of them. And, you know, that is kind of the thing that is hard to, to deal with. Like, we had Harry Kane and Hungman's son having the best years of their career. We had, you know, Gareth Bale miraculously returning to Spurs in what should have been, like, a glorious reunion. And for a very brief moment, we saw him actually be good for Spurs in harness with these two guys. And... You know, you'll always wonder about what that front three might have done under somebody less of a piece of shit than Jose Mourinho. And, you know, if Harry Kane's ankle injury proves to be, like, actually bad again and he goes back to the way he was two years ago, it's going to feel really shitty that we wasted, like, this brief resurgence of Harry Kane on Jose Mourinho's terrible Tottenham Hotspur. You know, if we have to sell Sun or Delhi because, you know, things have just gone too far or they're not happy anymore... Like, it's going to feel very bad. And all of these things were avoidable, and that is the legacy of Jose Mourinho. You know, there is there is nothing from this time period you're going to look back on fondly and say, this built something that led to a better future for the only The only but, positive, yeah. the only positive I think you could take away from this, looking back at it, is... Whether I don't know how much Mourinho had to do with it, we seem to have figured out something about it. Like maybe some of the young guys who came through like turned out to be big players one day, and by hook or by crook, we seem to have gotten our youth system a little more in order than it had been for the past couple of years. I have no idea if that's Mourinho or Mourinho was just not interested in it in the way that Pochettino seemed to be, where he was holding guys in the club and not allowing loans. You know, I, I always felt like the youth stuff was very performative with Mourinho, but he, they were talking about how he showed up at Alfie Devine's medical and shit like that. So I don't know, but that's the only thing. And I, I'm being a devil's advocate here, but that's the but only thing know. looking back at this that I could see having any positive sort of thoughts about in the future. You're, so you're more or less right. 
you know, I think it's funny because, like, one of the things that we got out of Mourinho was, like, a revamped youth loan system. Um, but of, like, the three big loans we did, Oliver Skip has been an unqualified success at Norwich. Troy Parrott has been yep. largely a disaster. Jack Clark, another disaster. Like, you know, so, like, that isn't what's exciting about the youth right now. Like, But, he, but he, like, you know... Really he, he, but, like, Dane Scarlett, Alfie Devine, like, those guys... Tanganga. Kind of program. I mean, Tanganga could be... Especially, like, Mourinho seemed to be weirdly beefing with him this year. So, like, under a real manager, like, you know, if, if Tanganga's, like, a... Our, Pochettino was playing Tanganga. Like, yeah, but, but my point is, like, if, if would you have a problem if he's our, like, backup right back or fourth center back next year? I think we'd all be very I, happy I, with I, that. I like Tanganga, but I'm saying, like, the, the minutes we got out of guys like that are just the same minutes we got out of guys like Harry Winks and Josh Anima and Kyle Walker-Peters, which were, like, negligible. You know, like, I think Tanganga under Jose looks like Kyle Walker-Peters under Pochettino, which is a few really strong performances, and then you kind of wonder, like, why isn't he getting more time? And then we sold him to Southampton, where he did a good job. You know, like, I don't I don't think it's an unqualified success what he's done with the youth team. It's oh, just, I don't know if it's an unqualified success. I just think it's the only thing we might look back on with any sort of fondness. And I'm just not interested in grasping those straws. No, I'm not either. I'm just here to be contrary. So I, I wouldn't be surprised though if Tanganga is one of the players that benefits from Mason yes. Powell's involvement, just because maybe they elect to play him over the other, you know, kind of poor right back options or center backs. Um, maybe who knows? I don't know. Yeah. So, I think it's time to move from one disappointment to another, uh, or maybe not. Um, the European Super League got announced in a very ugly fashion on Sunday night. Just to, again, we want to clarify with our listeners, we are recording this on Monday night in America. I mean, this whole thing seems to be moving very quickly, so God knows where it'll be by the time you listen to this. Top number one of 12 clubs announced this break, breakaway Super League. <laughs> I I think what strikes me most about this is I don't think I've seen a single group happy about this other than the clubs who are participating. And everyone seems to be angry. And if Florentino Perez's interview tonight was any indication, I don't think they, these people have it in them to do the necessary PR cleanup to make this go through. Now, maybe they just think they've got the money to push through this and make it happen, but I am, given just the overwhelmingly negative response, I am skeptical that would happen. Does anyone, just to lay it out for our listeners, does anyone, because I can't do it, have a structure? What would this league look like if it happens? Like, So, what they're saying it looks like is that it's, 20 teams uh, total, and uh, five of those are rotating that qualify, and then two groups of 10, and then, like, the top three qualify for, uh, like, a knockout stage, and then the next, the, the fourth place teams play each other for a place in the, I, I, I don't know. We're off to a great I, start. Not you, yeah. but, like, the Super but, League. No, but, it, that, like, that's basically the, the idea here. It's not really a, a, a league so much as it, is it, as it is just another version of the Champions League. 
Um, Except the 15 of the teams are locked in every year as opposed to having to play their way One of in. which is Tottenham Hotspur, guys. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? We're one of the 15 biggest and coolest clubs in Europe. Um, so, I don't know where to start on this because I think there's a lot of things to talk about with it. Um, but for me personally, I think where I start from is I like the idea of a European Super League in theory. Like, I like the idea of, like, a three or four league of 20-team structure where there's promotion and relegation and, you know, Spurs get to play against Real Madrid and Bayern Munich, and then if we get our asses handed to us, then the next year we have to go down and play Marseille and Monaco and Inter Milan. Like, like I like that idea. I think that sounds interesting and compelling. I don't like, though what we what these teams have created in practice and and it is very apparent from what they announced and all the reporting around it that this is just a naked money grab and i think we as americans are in a different position than in a lot of uh, English Spurs fans or European supporting soccer fans where our our sports teams are franchises and we expect a level of um, like, I, I don't know, greed? I don't know if that's the right word. No, I think that's very appropriate. But we expect a, like a level of that in our sports teams. And so that kind of inures us, or not inures, uh, um, makes us kind of uh, a little bit deaf to some of the weird money things that go on. Like, like I hate when the Supporters Trust talks about ticket prices. Like, pay the price of the tickets or don't go to the games. Like, don't care. Um, and, and, and maybe that's also just me. I don't know. Um, you do live in Florida. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, but this is just very clearly only done for money and increasing the profitability of these particular clubs, protecting their long-term interests, and turning them into, you know, basically franchises like we have in America. And it, it, it protects that, you know, that variable Champions League resume, or, 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 uh, revenue, sorry, um, that honestly most of these teams aren't really ever in danger of losing. Like, the clubs that are Spurs, Arsenal, um, I suppose Chelsea and United in recent memory. I mean, Liverpool um, spent a bunch of years out in the wilderness. But, you know, the cl- like Real Madrid and Barcelona signing on to us, like they're, they're signing on to because they have massive issues with debt and because Florentino Perez specifically has been chasing this, you know, white elephant for, for decades. But, like... I don't, there's, there's there's a whole lot of negatives with this, and um, like I said, I like the idea in theory. I want it to be executed well. This isn't it. So, I, I want to, just to show where I'm coming from here, so I'm, uh, as many of our listeners know, I am I'm from Baltimore. I'm a big fan of Baltimore sports teams, and one of the big 
things that I grew up amongst was the ruins of the Colts being taken out of Baltimore. And I know that um, the way sort of a lot of our European listeners might listen to us is, you know, they think of these teams as franchises or that it's more commercial over here. And that's true to an extent. But, you know, the Colts in Baltimore were just as beloved, just the fandom was just as passionate as, like, Liverpool fans in Liverpool. Like, it was just integral part of the city of Baltimore. And two years after I was born, they were taken to Indianapolis, um, basically because they offered to build them a new stadium and a better deal. And, you know, it really wrenched the city. And it was 16 years, and, like, Baltimore fans wouldn't adopt another team because they were so mad about it. And they tried to get an expansion team out of the NFL, which is sort of the right way to do it. The NFL creates a new team. You get that team. The NFL didn't want to do it for a whole lot of reasons. So eventually we said, fuck it, and stole a team from another city. So I'm incredibly, like, to me, when I think about sports teams, you know, I understand when you, especially in England, you come at it from their community institution thing. And they, I've seen it. Like, the Ravens who replaced the Colts, the Colts before the Ravens, the Orioles in my hometown, they're, they are community institutions for whatever else they are. But... I've always had a bit of an element of like, you know, when you see against modern football and some of that stuff, to me there's always an element of, you know, you root for a sports team, you know what sports owners are, like you kind of know what you're getting in bed with. And that's like a cynical way to look at it. I get it. I don't want to speak to that because I think Ben is about to speak very eloquently about that, so I'll leave a lot of that to him. My problem besides that, because I do have a problem with a lot of what this does to communities, what this does to the pyramid of football, what, putting all of that aside for just a second – one of the things that really drew me as an American to European football was how unique it was, the mystique of European football. You, not just European competition, but you know, you've got the English League, which has all these unique teams with these unique histories and this character that permeates the league as a whole. And then you've got the Spanish League, which has its own character and its own quirks. And Italy and Netherlands and Germany and so on and so forth. And that was all very cool to me. And the fact that these teams meet occasionally and play these matchups that are very rare and kind of weird like you know the fact that you know that PSG Bayern match that everyone had a really good time watching a few weeks ago you know obviously those two teams because they're amongst the elite of Europe are going to run into each other in the later the knockout stages of the Champions League fairly often but there was still some mystique about it because these teams don't play each other all the time and even in this age of football where you know Technology is such that we, you know, none of us are super unfamiliar with like what goes on in France or Germany in the way that they were in like the 80s or the 70s. You know, it's still cool because this, it's kind of, you know, when these two mega clubs clash in a game that means a lot or two games that mean a lot, it's unique. It's, it doesn't happen all the time. It's still very cool. I know that, you know, we first played Dortmund in the Europa League a bunch of years ago. I thought it was. Super cool. We get to play Dortmund. They're the sort of the devil rays of Europe. If the devil rays were cool, you know, they're, you know, there's like all these great young players. It was really neat and interesting. And then we played them like three times in four years or something. And it was just kind of, you know, by the time we played them in, in the, that was by far the least interesting tie on every possible level when we made our run to the Champions League final. Partially because it was a comfortable game, but we'd already played them so many times. It was like playing Arsenal. Or, or, well, not Arsenal, but it was like playing, you know, like, Man United or something. It was just like, oh, that's a big team that we're playing, but it didn't feel like sexy or new. And I think this, you know, like you're going to fucking play the, I know there's going to be some sort of mixing up so you don't play them all at the same time, but it's just going to become rote and boring and it takes everything that's fun out of European competition while also simultaneously gutting the National Leagues or or, or 
at least cutting out a lot of what makes the National League so fun. And I think the other thing I just want to say about this that I think is awful is, you know, I think every time you see in leagues around the world try to, like, protect their privilege, for lack of a better term, like, you see them fucking around with relegation formulas in, like, South America, Argentina, you know, you see, um, you know, Mexico, you see this, it always weakens the league, it always makes it worse, it's never good, it feels like it's, like, it just feels like they're cheating, and that's what this is, and it's just gross and awful, and maybe I'm not as, like, I have some friends who are much more upset about this than I am, not because they dislike it more than I do, I just, maybe I'm naive, I just think the negative reaction is going to kill this, but... Anyway, that, that was a lot. I'm sorry. I just had to ramble, so. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think definitely as a, a, a first point of interest as an American fan, it's like you definitely recognize that American sports operate in a very different economy and a very different framework than, than European football does. You know, whatever the origins of the various teams and the various big major American sports they have been reduced to these franchises for at least like 70 plus years. You know, they're, they have been professionalized in a closed ecosystem of teams for a very long time. And we have seen, like Greg said, teams pick up sticks and move from one city to another. And the world just carries on. And the fact is, is America is like 50 times bigger than the UK and there are not teams that serve every local market. There are teams that serve, you know, four or five states and 15 or 20 cities, and they just glom on to fandom of this team because that's the team that's near them, and that's who's getting broadcast in their market, and, like, they don't have anything else in town because there's no Nebraska football team or basketball team or whatever. So you got to – you like basketball, you got to find someone to watch. And, like – that is a climate that we are very used to. But, you know, I think one of the things that is is so romantic about, you know, the English Football League pyramid and you know, European sports is you can trace these teams back to the 1800s or whatever. And you can see, you know, even a club like Arsenal, as cynical as, as they moved into our backyard, you know, they were founded by workers at the Royal Arsenal, you know, munitions factory in London and well Woolwich but you know like they that that is where that roots of that team is it's like this is a team that these workers founded to just play a sport in their spare time that has become this this thing that is now so much bigger than that with a global audience and you know tons of trophies and whatever you know you look at Tottenham it was like a schoolboy club whatever like all of these teams have their roots in very, very specific local contexts. And the history of the English game, and again, you know, you can extrapolate this to other countries, has been the erosion of these community institutions as the leagues get bigger, get richer, and whatever, you know, the the smaller market teams get left behind. And, you know, I think there's a there's a big inflection point when the Premier League happened when when the top teams said we're going to negotiate our own TV deal and we're not going to share revenue down the pyramid and these 24 teams who are at the top of the table or 22 teams or whatever it was at the time are going to keep the bulk of this money and we're going to make everybody else chase after it and 
you know, you've seen teams fall by the wayside over the years. Um, you know, like a club like Accrington Stanley, which is one of the founding clubs of the football league is, is still hanging on, but like who the fuck could tell me what, what division Accrington Stanley is or one player on that team? Like nobody, but you know, even even the, the the Premier League era, clubs like Norwich and Covington and, or Coventry and Ipswich, who are like right there, have like fallen down. The, you know, the ladder. Blackburn, Portsmouth, Middlesbrough, Charlton, teams who have like very big Premier League presences have like all but disappeared in the footprint of what we think about English football means. And it is a, a tragedy that the way that this sport has been globally exported has meant an erosion of these institutions that mean so much to these places. And, you know, I think that's a thing that we really have a hard time as Americans connecting with is what it means to have a team in, in your random, not just city, but like you're part of a city and there's another team across town in another part of the city. And like, that's, that's not, that's not rare. That's, that's just incredibly normal. There's like three cities in America that understand what that's like. That's like every city in England. Right. Like, yeah, any any random place seems to have a football club, and there might be a couple of them. And, like, you know, some of them are still hanging on, and some of them are, are dwindling. Like, there's a Leighton Orient that we, that we partner with. Like, that is a London football club that, you know, is in one of the biggest markets in, in the world and is barely clinging to survival. You know, you have a Brentford that is doing all they can to like money ball their way towards some kind of success. But like there's there's a dozen clubs in London alone. And like that, that's a, that's an insane kind of ecosystem that I think is really hard to process. But all of this stuff is dying. It's been dying for a really long time. And one of the things about like the way this system ostensibly works is this idea of a meritocracy that like, well, if you do well, you can move up to the next division. If you do well there, you can move up to the next division. And like those riches are not far away from your fingertips. And maybe you get there and maybe you have enough money to, you know, stick around for a minute and then you can build a new stadium. And then, and then you could be one of, one of the elite, you know, and that process has been a lie for a really long time. But the way that this super league, I'm finally getting around to the point, the way that the super league operates it really makes transparent how much of a lie that is by entrenching these 15 teams into this like hallowed elite and, you know, leaving everybody else and not just in England and every other country and not just the major countries, but like Croatia and Slovenia and Turkey and wherever, like they all have these same football pyramids and they're all grasping at the same kind of like faint hope at like achieving something. Um, we're just, creating this like walled garden that we pretend that like anybody might have access to, but it is more apparent than ever that like you don't. And, you know, as a fan of like a sport, you know, you want to see all the best players in one place playing against each other. But like the only way that that kind of system works is to close the doors on everybody else. And, it necessarily means kind of bleeding out these institutions that have existed in these communities for a really long time. And they will, they will die. They're already dying. Like you're already seeing teams that just don't exist anymore. They go into administration, they spiral down the ladder and like, that's the end of it. You're probably never going to hear from them again. 
And I mean, that to me is is the is the tragedy of all of this. Is this just? It's just creating. It's turning a thing that was such an important part of people's lives and communities into a product. And it's 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 both like really exhilarating if you like just are a foreign fan and want to watch a sport, but it's really sad to see what it means for everybody in balance involved. And like as a fan of a club like Tottenham Hotspur, if this thing happened twenty years ago, we would not be invited to the so yeah, but ten years ago we wouldn't be invited. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like, you know, the journey we went on is is remarkable and is, you know, again, backstopped by billionaires with a good business plan who were in a very favorable, like, television market to, like, make this London club happen. But, you know, there's no – there was a time when, like, Everton and Aston Villa and Bolton or Portsmouth, like, might have been one of those teams in our shoes. And, like – they're just not, and you know, the, there's there's a glamour of the idea that they might be. Yeah. And the further we stray from that idea of an equitable football system where, you know, anybody could could rise up through the ranks, the more it gives a lie that like we just don't care about that thing. That is the bedrock of what the sport is. And there's something galling, I think, about you know maybe not for Spurs, who do have a little bit of trouble making the Champions League on a regular basis, but. Certainly for the Real Madrids, the the Manchester United, the Juventuses of the world. Like, you really are worried about cementing your play. I mean, I know they want more money, too, but, like, you're going to be in the fucking Champions League every year. Like, the teams that have really driven this, with maybe the exception of Liverpool, which, like I said, has spent a few of those years in the wilderness. And that they can't just be fucking bothered to, like, put out the minimum effort they need to put out. To ensure they make the Champions League every couple of years. Like, it's it's galling. And the other thing that I think is really telling about this, we talked a lot about the formation of the Premier League, or you did, Ben. And whatever else you want to say about, about the foundation of the Premier League, I know this is a fraught topic, but it was at least coming at a time where English football needed that investment of money. It needed to change. Maybe not that investment of money, but it needed to change. Because, frankly, people were dying in the stadiums in the 80s. Like, I mean, it was like English football was like the way it operated in the 80s couldn't be that, – that was not sustainable. And there had to be a change. And at least like the Premier League, as much as it was just a money grab and all this other shit, at least it was sort of like it could glom on to that need for like better stadiums, safer environments, like an investment of funds into these, into these clubs so they could build better stadiums or refit their stadiums. This is – and again, like I'm not sure the Premier League was necessary for those changes, but at least it was that problem existed and was in search of some sort of solution. This is totally a solution in search of a problem that doesn't exist. See, I don't know that I actually agree with that. Like, okay, so like you know, I think you, you did nail it. Like, the Premier League English football was not the pinnacle of, of sports that it is today. You know, it, is, it was not the best league in the world in the 90s, like the Italian league was, you know, like this is what changed the landscape in the Premier League by making, giving them access to all that money with a, you know, a generous revenue sharing among those top clubs that allowed stadiums to be built all over the country and allowed a level of parity that doesn't exist in Italy and Germany and, and, and uh, Spain, you know, like in that respect, like a lot of good things 
kind of happen there. You know, you know, you look at Spain and like Barcelona and Real Madrid have their own negotiated TV deal, but they don't share money with the rest of the league, and so they get richer and everybody else. Well, gets and it's it's like, telling that that when that has changed in recent years, they pushed harder for a Super League. Right, and like that's the thing is like as the Premier League has become this kind of dominant force in sports, you know, a Juventus knows that like Syria is not ever going to be able to capture the share of the global market that the Premier League does. Like, yeah, Juventus knows that they can always probably finish in the Champions League spots and keep that money, but like they know that Syria is increasingly irrelevant, and the only way that they can stay relevant is if they glom on to something that is bigger than them and that isn't the Premier League and they create a new league that is now the biggest thing in the world. And like Barcelona and Real Madrid also have like very serious debt issues and like despite being the richest teams in La Liga and having some of the best players in the world, like again, the, as a league, it's not competing with what the Premier League did. And so I think that they're looking for an opportunity to do that again, is to leave everybody else behind and just be part of you know that that first table, and all of the the teams that have leverage and and money now, turning that into a future where they remain in in that in that situation. Because you know I think we've seen over the over the recent years the Premier League getting more competitive top to bottom as teams like West Ham and Leicester and whoever able to compete with superpowers in, in Europe, like, you know, an Atletico Madrid or a Valencia or Sevilla, where, like, much bigger clubs than Southampton, you know, are competing for the same players because that's where the money lies. And I think a lot of these clubs recognize that and are trying to cut that off before it happens because it's there's only so much money to, like, fund this game. And everyone wants to gobble it up. Right, and, and I think that that is an interesting point because I, I, I've seen the point made that, hey, look, you know, Juventus have won the last however many Serie A titles. PSG have won, you know, most of the last few Ligue 1 titles. Bayern Munich are on a, whatever, 10-season uh, win streak. Real, nobody other than, like, Real Madrid and Barcelona has won La Liga in however long. Like, And so that is an argument why people say, like, domestic leagues are not meeting the level of competition for these particular teams and so a European Super League is like the next necessary step to give these teams real competition but what that ignores is what we could be doing is making those domestic leagues more competitively viable and and I think one of the things that we as Americans are so very used to is parity um, and you know obviously in a closed franchise system where you have like a draft where the worst team gets the shot at potentially a best player and so on and so forth like it's a different thing over here but the way you achieve things like more parity and more competition up and down the table like what we've seen in the Premier League over the course of the last six eight years is better revenue sharing like you know we look at Spain specifically and how much of the TV deal money goes specifically to Barcelona and Real Madrid? It's nowhere even close to, you know, on par with 
what the other teams make. They they are they are so far over and above what those teams are getting um, from those revenue sharing deals that there's no possible way for a team like a Sevilla to compete for Valencia to come back to to do what they did, um, you know, twenty years ago. Um, yeah, they, Atletico they, Madrid they, needs a miracle to win the league. You know. Right, and even Atletico, who's a very good team and has had amazing run in European Cup competitions can't possibly compete consistently with with Barcelona and Real. And, and and so to me they're like like Ben said they're solving a different problem than what that problem actually is. Like the problem that actually exists. And and in fairness to all these teams, UEFA and FIFA aren't fixing it either. Like like the way the Champions League is structured now, the way the Europe, European competitions are structured now, that's not fixing any of the imbalance that exists. And I'm not saying that these people are smart enough to come up with a system that works, but what they could all be doing is making efforts to make their own domestic competitions more competitive. And I think that would go a long way. And, and again, look, like I said, I'm in favor of some crazy expanded you know, European competition that's a league and it replaces the Champions League and whatever. Like, I, I, that, that's fine, but like this, this so much isn't it. And then for the record, Ben, Akron to Stanley, League One, Joe Pritchard, former Tottenham Hotspur Academy prospect. I definitely didn't just Google that. Um, <laughs> brother of Alex Pritchard, maybe. I don't know. Wikipedia doesn't say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Yeah, I, I just there's so many things wrong with this, and I, I look. I'm not as doom and gloom as some people. Like where they're like, this is the death of football. This is the end of things as we know it. Like I really don't think that you know there will be these sweeping bans for these clubs that have agreed to participate in it. I don't think players will be banned. I don't think any of this stuff is going to happen. I think ultimately what happens with this is there's some level of negotiation between these 12 teams and UEFA or FIFA and we wind up with some sort of compromise that makes people like Florentino Perez and Stan Kroenke and um, you know the, the people that own Fenway Sports Group and the Glazers like that will make them feel better and more secure about the piece of the pie that they get in UEFA. And that's not good. It doesn't help football as a whole. Um, but I think it will probably make this whole thing go away. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think there's definitely a situation where, you know, they've threatened this and now everybody, every other stakeholder, UEFA, FIFA, the various FAs, all get to come back to the table and demand things and threaten things and whatever. And, you know, the rich clubs get their uh, a larger slice of the pie and a little more security, and the other clubs get to pretend like, you know, they backed them down. And everyone gets to walk away pretending like they're a winner. But, like, the fact is the status quo is bad, and any, any, any concessions that we make to allowing this to happen... Um, is going to be worse, you know. You know, we talk about like you know the big the big leagues, but it's like why does 
Shot Carter next and, and, and Ajax not get a seat at this table? Why isn't Porto in the conversation? Why is Dynamo Zagreb not allowed to have like the resources funneled towards them to become a major player in global football? Like it's there's just there's so many teams in this in this footballing economy that there's just not any interest in allowing the money to fund because it's so heavily concentrated in a few places. Well, and the goal is just to concentrate in even fewer and fewer hands. And, like, you know, I think for me as, you know, a, a radical communist who believes in distribution of wealth and, you know, and, and you know, I mean, frankly, like municipal ownership and a lot of other things, but, like, you know, there is a world where we could imagine a version of soccer that is, you know, a pan-European, if not global, that allows for leagues to exist all the way top down, that all funnels into the same place, that shares money and allows for infrastructure to build and allows, you know, everybody a seat at the table. Um, but there's just there's just no will to do anything like that, not even on the smallest version of that, which is like the Premier League just sharing its money a little better with the rest of the league. Like it's it feels sadly inevitable that like the only future we have available to us is getting as many teams into this pan-European pyramid as possible and then all these smaller market teams just dying. And that feels like the a win almost in a way that's just so sad. I mean, by the I, way, it's incredibly hilarious that like a third of this league is going to be English football teams. Especially considering the quality of some of these teams over the past like five years, like, <laughs> Arsenal. Are you thinking of Arsenal? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely hard to argue that like we are, you know, currently one of the twelve best teams in the world, but we're definitely one of the ten richest teams in the world, and like that's what fucking matters. And I think there's definitely a sense that, you know, because Champions League revenues are so important, and and England only gets four spots, you know, there's a big six, and six doesn't go into four that easily, and a lot of teams who were counting on Champions League revenue every single season are no longer getting it, are like, well, we're rich enough, we, we're going to demand a seat at the table. I mean, I, I think what this exposes is, I think every level of football, no matter where you are in the world, no matter how high or low it is, really traffics in this idea that it's like, it's a meritocracy. It's open to everyone. You know, it's it's you know fair play, all that all that stuff. Whether you're talking about the World Cup and international soccer, or whether you're talking about you know the Premier League, or even just the sort of English, you know, the, 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 the magic whole... of the cup. Yeah, no, exactly. But you see that to some degree, like everywhere. You know, um, I think in England, it's 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 more pronounced than in other places, but it's. It, it's something that every level of football traffics in very heavily. And I think just, you know, like we were talking about, like you at least had the window dressing with like the richest competition in the world. You had the window dressing of the, like Leicester can be in this competition. You know, you can, Leighton Orient sucks, but one day maybe they can play their way into it. If all the things line up for them correctly, even though all the odds are stacked against them. And it just sort of, you know, we all know that's bullshit, but this like just, lays that hypocrisy bare. And it's just, I think it's hard for a lot of people to take. Uh, you know, it's, it's, 
it's just not good. Uh, one thing we haven't really talked about, which I think we need to discuss before we go, is how do we feel about Tottenham's involvement in this? Um, you know, I think you see a lot of people trying to banter us off about, you know, or the league off talking about like, oh, Tottenham is one of the most elite clubs in the world. That's not really what I'm interested in. I mean, Ben, I'll start with you because I can probably guess what you're going to say to some extent. But how do you feel about Spurs being involved in this? How does that affect your relationship with the club, or is it too early to really, you know, comment on that? I mean, I have I have very twisted up feelings. Like, yes, on the one hand, I very strongly despise seeing the club that I've given 15 years of love and loyalty to, to see them be part of what feels like a very calculated destruction of a lot of what I love about football. At the same time, if the if football is going to be destroyed, you know, I, I, I guess it's nice to see Spurs still existing. Well, it's that David Kahn quote about City. Like, I wish it, this hadn't, we talk about the sheet taking over, I wish this hadn't happened to anyone, but if it had to happen to someone, at least it was us. Right, like, and you know, like I think my relationship to the club and my fandom is definitely will definitely change if something like this goes through, especially as the years go by and and things collapse collapse down the ladder as I imagine they will. But I don't know, like you know, imagine you're a Sheffield United fan and this happens. Like, how are you looking at it? Like, just as bleakly, but like you know, seeing your existence spiral out and having to be like, well, who's the closest team left to Sheffield? Uh, I, I guess I'm going to have to pick a new team. This is the only team still going in this sport that I like. Like, I, I don't know that's a better situation. Like, it's just, and there's, there's no winners here for, for the fans. As much as, like, you know, Especially the AMF sort of against modern football contingent sort of I see it as hypocrisy bothers me in terms of like pretending things used to be better when they were just worse in different ways. As much as that irritates me, this is bad. I mean, this isn't good. I'm not happy that Spurs are involved in this. I don't want to see this league go through. I think it's a bad idea for all the reasons we've enumerated, both in terms of a self-interest perspective and a fairness to others perspective. I mean, I guess I'm glad that we're not left out of the party, but, you know, it's like, I, I mean, don't... It's hypocritical, right? Like, yeah, it is. benefit so much from, like, the way that wealth has accreted to his club like Spurs in a way that, like, was not the natural order of things, but we got there, and it's like, we, bene- we benefited heavily from all the toxic horribleness of of, of the financialization of the Premier League, like, very much. It's, yeah. I mean, we've all kind of let that happen and been pretty okay with it. You know, I, look, I've listened to podcasts today and, and, and articles and stuff, and people are talking about, like, oh, you know, the Tottenham Hotspur as I knew it doesn't exist anymore, and Daniel Levy has to leave the club now, like, this is a disgrace, and, like, I'm not at that point. Uh, the point that I'm at is Daniel Levy's a businessman. He saw this opportunity for Spurs. He took advantage of it, and like that—that's that. It is what it is. Because like you just addressed, like I would much rather be on the inside looking out of this than to be, you know, Everton or 
you know, you know, whatever other club is in England that is that, that misses the boat on this. Like, I don't, I don't want to be, I wouldn't want to be that club in the context of making money. Uh, or, or, you know, the financial interest of my club, the ability for us to sign new players, the ability for us to do all sorts of other things. Um, but, yeah, it, I, it, this is going to be a weird... We, we talked about inflection points earlier when we were talking about Jose, and, and obviously I think this is, like, an inflection point for what does European football become. I think, ultimately, the answer is this doesn't change much and that you don't think it's going to happen the way it's proposed is what you mean by that right yeah right i think i think ultimately uefa fifa these 12 clubs work something out uh you know look we've we've seen uefa in the past or or, or teams within um the european league structure propose you know a system where you know, more teams get in from certain countries where legacy, quote unquote, legacy teams qualify for European competitions. Um, you know, UEFA is restructuring the Champions League as we speak. They're voting on it on Friday. Like, you know, I think ultimately all this does is result in reform of the structure of the Champions League that gives these particular clubs more security and it gives them the result that they want and I think that's probably bad for football and I think that's probably bad if you're a fan of clubs that aren't those 12 clubs um, but I don't I, I, I really I think a bigger deal is being made of this than probably it actually should be I like you know, UEFA coming out and saying they'll ban these players from competitions, that, you know, they won't be able to play in the Euros, they won't be able to play in, um, uh, you know, World Cups and stuff like that. Like, I don't think anybody's ever going to let it come to that point. So, really, honestly, is this all a result of David Moyes as a team on the fringe of qualification for the Champions League? Uh, yeah, 100%. 100%. Like, we can't let that happen. What, what do we have to do here? I, I mean, look, like I said earlier, it, it's it's very much about money. It's about teams like Real Madrid, Barcelona, Arsenal, United, us, trying to make sure that, that European revenue stays available to us. And, you know, and, 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 not, and Real Madrid and Barcelona aren't necessarily worried about that revenue staying available. They're worried about increasing their portion of the pie of that revenue. And... and you know, like I said, I, I, I don't ultimately think that in August of 2021, we're going to see this breakaway league happen. Like, there's just no way, feasibly, they can get that up and down in this time. Um, it, it, I, I think we're much, much more likely to see business as usual, but with, like, renegotiated structure or deals for these 12 teams. I think even if you're right that's a short-term answer because they've been threatening a European Super League breakaway for well over a decade, you know, like that has been a thing that these clubs have advocated for. And even if it just means them coming back to the table now, 
unless there is just a radical reimagining of how the whole football structure works all across Europe, it's only a matter of time before they have this conversation again. Like, you know, they were negotiating with UEFA about the structure of the Champions League for the next four years, which precipitated this. And again, if they come back to the table, that's going to mean this is what the Champions League looks like for four years, and then we're going to be right back here again. And what does the climate look like in four years? Are we having this conversation again? Probably. And, you know, for all the talk that we've had about a breakaway league, this is easily the furthest yeah. it's gone. Like, they talk, they have financing from J.P. Morgan. Like, they've, they've they have a website. <laughs> yeah, they've laid so Do much they have a website? Work. Or well, did somebody make well, a website in a couple hours? Well, I, I think, but I think Ben, that's an interesting point because I think that's maybe why I'm kind of weirdly detached from the situation, and I know that's maybe a strange reaction, but like, you know, I've been a fan since 2010, and I've heard about the threat of a European breakaway league the entire time I've been a fan, and I, and I think there's people who have been fans for much longer than me who have heard about it the entire time they've been fans. And there's something deeply surreal about, like, seeing all of this. I mean, not only seeing Tottenham part of this, but just seeing a concrete-ish structure appear and it not just be, like, something Real Madrid and Barca use to get, like, better TV deals in, in Spain. It's, I, I don't know, maybe, like, maybe I am extremely stupid. It still just doesn't feel real to me because it still feels like this just, this, it was never real. You know, like it wasn't like we've been like hearing whispers about this. It was just all of a sudden dropped in our lap. Yeah, and I'm sure there was. They announced it April 19th, and they're like, "Hey, by the way, we're gonna start play in August." And you're like, "Really? You guys aren't gonna have any more lead up time than that? Four months is all it takes for you guys to figure all of this out." Well, I mean, we we learned this year that college football scheduling was bullshit, and they could schedule games immediately. So maybe that's what this is. But it just feels so. You know, it's it, it in a lot of ways. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like all the shit you hear about in the Trump administration, which is like he's going to go after you know Obamacare all of a sudden, and it's like it's this thing that you heard Republicans talking about for a while, and then they actually try to do it, and it's just this like surreal experience because it's like, oh, they're actually trying this incredibly stupid, awful thing, and you know, it's it's strange to see like the sort of the edges of it in a way that was never real before then, but I guess, I guess I'm just having terms, uh, trouble coming to terms with the reality of the situation because it seems so unreal for so long to me. And at least Jose's gone. And whatever happens, Jose Mourinho will not be managing in the European Super League, and that is a win. Can I, I want to I end it on this. The dumbest fucking thing I saw on the internet today was the idea that Jose Mourinho was fired at Spurs because he wouldn't carry water for the Super League. The idea that Jose Mourinho, who joined Chelsea at their most sort of outrageous point of their history, the most like where people were the most disgusted with Chelsea and what they were doing in the game, that he would give like any fucks about the the, the league. And I don't want to like use this to necessarily denigrate Mourinho because I think there's a lot of people in football who do not give a shit about this. When they probably should, but like the idea that Mourinho has some sort of moral objection to this is so fucking laughable that I, I don't know what to say. And that this was being thrown around on the internet today by some extremely stupid people it was just. Ugh. Jose Mourinho, welcome to the resistance. <laughs> yeah, how how do you feel uh, with Jose Mourinho uh, being a dues-paying DSA member now? Then. Yeah, I mean it's absurd to think that like. 
Someone someone tweeted a good tweet. It's like the idea that Jose was fired for being like some underground resistance leader and not for being a terrible football manager is just absurd. Ugh. On that note, this was a packed episode. Um, I hope all of our listeners enjoyed it. If you did, please leave us a five star review on iTunes. I think we deserve it after this marathon. Um, ben, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Comrade You Spurs. Brian, where can people find you on the tubes? You can find me on Twitter at Brian underscore Ashlock. That is Brian with a Y. And do not forget to follow our Twitter feed for our podcast at WDR Podcast. That's WDR as in Wheeler Dealer Radio. And you can find me on Twitter at Skipjack0079. Uh, we'll be back in a few days to talk about Ryan Mason's first game as Tottenham Oscar manager. And guys, is this the most excited we've been about a Spurs match in, like, I don't know, Ever. since... Maybe ever. Uh, maybe, I, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, I, I remember recording the IX podcast. Uh, I, I don't know, certainly since like the first three games of this season. It's the most excited I've ever been about a match involving Ryan Mason. <laughs> I believe that. I believe that. On that note, I can't think of a better way to end an episode of Wheel of the Other Radio than that. For Ben, for Brian, and of course, for Brett Rainbow, I have been your host, Greg. Come on, you Spurs, and Jose is finally out.